0: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Jenny Peruski from Harvard University.
1: And I'm the co-host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University.
0: Today, I'm here to talk to Professor Nancy Um, the author of Shipped But Not Sold, Material Culture and the Social Protocols of Trade During Yemen's Coffee Age, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2017. Nancy Um is Professor and Associate Dean of Art History at Binghamton University. Her work focuses on the material and built cultures of the Arabian Peninsula and Red Sea and Indian Ocean littorals. She has published widely on these topics, including her first book entitled The Merchant Houses of Mocha, Trade and Architecture in an Indian Ocean Port, as well as numerous articles and chapters on Indian Ocean aromatics, gifting and exchange, medicine, architecture, and countless other topics. Her work encourages readers to consider the broader contexts in which objects and architecture functioned in the mobile world of the Western Indian Ocean. By discussing her recent publication, "Shipped but Not Sold," we will explore the material, textual, and social underpinnings of maritime trade in eighteenth-century Yemen, and more specifically on the cities of Mocha and Beit El fapi In this book, we learn about the material cultures and gift-giving praxis of the Indian Ocean that included Arabian stallions, bottles of fragrant rosewater, slivers of aromatic agarwood from Southeast Asia, gilded porcelain coffee cups from China and Japan tufted Persian velvet in red, green, and blue, translucent turban wrappers of Bengali muslin, shimmering pieces of heavy satin from Gujarat, bales of coffee beans ground in the mountains of Yemen, sacks of cloves, cinnamon, mace, and nutmeg, vials of spiced oils, yardage of English cloth, chests filled with silver pieces of eight. Um, so turning now to our speaker, Nancy M, um, I'd like to welcome you to new books in the Indian Ocean world. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us d- about your book today. Uh, can you maybe start us off by saying a few words about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, um, why you came to um, study the Indian Ocean or any particularly influential mentors that you
2: had? Sure. Well, first, I just want to uh, thank Jenny and Ahmed for inviting me to participate in this podcast. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, and as an art historian, I love the challenge of having to work in a medium in which I have no images. So it's a really <laughs> nice challenge, but, uh, fun for me to kind of, uh, work through different modes of expression. Um, so, uh, I will, I guess, to start off in this kind of human way to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, so I, um, went to college at Wellesley uh, outside of Boston. And um, it was there that I first started to study Islamic art. And I will tell you before, I took my first class uh, in Islamic art. I had no idea what that was or that it really existed as a thing in the world. So I came um, to it really from a point of naivete, uh, as I think many of the kind of parts of my career were defined by not knowing and kind of naivete rather than expertise and knowledge. Um, and uh, I just got really intrigued with Islamic art and architecture. And then I was really lucky uh, as a uh, junior in college to study in Cairo at the American University of Cairo. And um, that was when I was able to spend time in the old city of Cairo. I, I love that city. I was so uh, immersed in the monuments of old Cairo. Uh, I love studying Arabic and um i didn't know exactly what i wanted to do but i knew that i couldn't stop there right so i uh went on to do uh, a masters uh, in uh, islamic art history kind of thinking that i might just do that and kind of you know uh, then uh, do something else uh and then i continued on to uh, a phd uh, in islamic art history at ucla uh, working with uh, the late Rini beerman um which was really lucky because she was um uh, a very creative thinker and someone who just allowed her students to uh, work on topics that might have seemed implausible, like working on Indian Ocean architectural history at a time when not that many people were working on that. And you know that was the 90s, right? So um, really almost 30 years ago. Uh, of course, today, when we talk about uh, oceanic history or uh, definitely Indian Ocean history, those fields are really quite well defined. Uh, I would say, um, but uh, back then it was seen as, you know, kind of a strange thing to do. Um, but uh, she had confidence that it was something that was worth pursuing. And so I think I'm really lucky that I was able to work with someone who uh, opened up an area of study and kind of let me follow this path, uh, even if it uh, there wasn't a kind of clear road ahead of me.
1: That's wonderful. Um, we would like to know how the, the book idea developed. If you can share with us the research and writing process. And also, if you have any advice on how to embark on a study of material culture in the Indian Ocean, what are the available resources and venues for that?
2: Sure. So um, this book and the book that came before it both emerged like so many academic books out of a doctoral dissertation, again, that was undertaken at UCLA. Um, and I think it's important because, you know, again, I, I've already signaled how Indian Ocean Studies has developed so much over the past decades. Uh, it's important to kind of go back to that moment, you know, the kind of early mid 90s, and to think about what there was out there. Um, at that time, there were art historians, not that many, but they were working on uh, what I would consider to be Indian Ocean topics, but largely from a landed perspective. So it was, you know, a South Asianist. Uh, trying to find, say, the origin of some motif that appeared in South Asian art and looking to the Swahili coast, for instance, or, uh, you know, the same might go for, you know, some material culture or visual phenomenon that might be found in, uh, the, uh, the Gulf or in the Red Sea. Um, and so all of these efforts were really focused on single places. And I would say as well that the kind of interest at that time was about finding origins right? You know, that you have to kind of find the ultimate place that something began um, and, and appeared first, right? Um, and uh, so I very much responded to those impulses in that um, I, from the outset, saw Indian Ocean visual culture as much more kind of intertwined. Uh, I noted from the beginning that this whole motif hunt or origin hunt or desire to find the ultimate origin influence was uh, really just a losing battle, right? Um, and uh, I would like to think that one of the contributions of my work has been to think about the relationship between Indian Ocean cultures and particularly visual cultures as being um, so kind of intertwined and cyclical that uh, origin – It's not that it's irrelevant, right? I mean, it is, you know, it's a question that we can ask, but we certainly can't stop there. We have to kind of delve into thinking about not just where did something come from in terms of motif or technique or material, but we have to ask ourselves as well uh, what did it mean when it circulated? How did it circulate? Who adopted it? And on what terms did they adopt it? How did they understand it? Right? And these questions to me are much more interesting than what I think um, we had in front of us, you know, in those early years when I began to work on these questions. Um, And uh, in terms of the available resources, I will say, you know, when I first started working on this topic, I felt like there was so little out there. A part of it was that that was a kind of different moment in terms of accessibility of resources. Today, I mean, I still kind of find what I look through museum uh, collections online, I find objects that are really relevant to study. And so I think there's so much out there. And I think it's up to us to build a corpus of objects that we believe kind of constitute this Indian Ocean visual and material culture. Um, and it's really open-ended right now. There are certain objects that I think we're all familiar with, um, but uh, there's a lot more work to be done in this area. And so uh, some of us, I think, need to go into some of these museum storerooms and dig into the back, you know, the depths of these storerooms and um, to uh, work on materials that uh, have not been uh, focused on. And so I think there's a lot more work to be done.
1: Definitely. Um, I would like to reference your first book. Uh, So can you briefly introduce us to the uh, the first book, The Merchant Houses of Mocha and the architecture in in an Indian Ocean port published by University of Washington Press in 2009. And how does this book connect to or depart from uh, your previous work, your current work and your previous work?
2: Yeah. So it's funny because the two books, The Merchant Houses of Mocha, which was uh, my first book, and then this more recent book, Ship But Not Sold, they're definitely connected. And they're connected in a few different ways. They're kind of like jigsaw pieces that together um, in, I would say, kind of complementary ways. And so um, in the Merchant Houses of Mocha, uh, I was really interested in thinking about port city architecture and particularly Indian Ocean port city architecture and what constituted it. Um, There hadn't been a lot of writing about the kind of urban structure of port cities uh, before that time. Most of the work um, had focused, I would say, largely on the Indian subcontinent. It was also much more recent, you know, dealing with modern architecture. Or modern city planning, and definitely colonial period planning, and so I felt that there was a a gap that needed to be addressed. Uh, It's a hard question to answer, though. It is a hard topic to deal with because when I uh, kind of naively chose the topic of Mocha, which I thought was, you know, when I first began to work on it, of course, very far away from Yemen. uh, You know, sitting in Los Angeles as I was a doctoral student. Um, I didn't realize that mocha uh, was so destroyed in terms of its uh, historic urban fabric. And so when I went there, I realized that that idea of writing this architectural history was going to be more challenging than I thought it was, uh, that it would be. Um, and so I had to delve into a lot of different kinds of sources for that book, um, one of which uh, was kind of surprisingly the archives of the uh, Dutch East India Company or the VOC in the Hague. And so, uh, that book really kind of pushed me to work with this body of archives that I was not prepared to work with it all. No one had ever told me that I would have to learn Dutch to do this dissertation. And um, uh, at that time, I was really trying to squeeze out of those archives any information about architecture. And of course, those merchants didn't want to talk about city form. They didn't want to talk about buildings, right? So it was a really kind of painful process of trying to understand the use of city space from these archives. Uh, and all the while, those archives, uh, as well as other sources that I was using that came from uh, largely European sources, but also local sources, um, they spoke mostly about things that I wasn't that interested in at that time, like gifts was a major preoccupation, um, the ceremonies of reception um, and kind of how merchants would meet with each other and the kinds of things they would exchange. All of this was very well-documented in those sources. So in the first book, I was fighting against my sources to try to kind of squeeze out information on my chosen topic. Um, When it got to the point where I finally finished that first book after a lot of uh, pain and suffering, I will say, um, for the second book, I realized, you know what, I need to tell the story that these documents wanted to tell, which was about these topics like gifting, about ceremonies, about the what I call the social protocols of trade. Um, and so I kind of use these sources in very different ways. And I will also say one thing I do think happened as well over that period of time is that I began to, um, I think, understand those sources much more, um, in a much more subtle way, in a more nuanced way. Uh, you know, there were things about them that I didn't really get. My, in, when I was writing the first book and I was again really just focused on information gathering as a, a kind of approach, which uh, you know, makes sense. This was a very early project for me. But by the second book um, I had started to develop a great deal of skepticism about those sources and I understood that when merchants talked about a particular practice in one way that they were talking about it in that way because of other events and kind of preoccupations that they had that were not necessarily so clear in those sources. Um, and so um, I like to think that the second book in some ways um you know it kind of tells me what the what the archives wanted to tell me while also understanding what they didn't want to tell me right and so the two books were very much linked together um in the way i kind of dealt with this body of archival sources um and had to kind of grapple with them um and dealt with the challenges that they offered me so i see them very much in relation to the archive actually
1: i like that um process of working along the grains and against the grains in these two books. Um, Thank you for alluding to that. So continuing talking about the archives, you note uh, throughout your, your book that European voices speak loudest in the archives and that they are comparatively much fewer documents from Arab and Indian merchants. How did this shape your research process and the questions you ask about maritime trade in Yemen?
2: Yeah, yeah, this is, of course, the perennial question for historians. And I should first start by saying that um, there are so many recent scholars who have done amazing work with uh, local archival materials um, in vernacular local languages, non-European sources. And I would just mention someone like um, Eric Vallee, who has worked on um, the Rasulid port of Aden and has done some uh, really great work uh, with those materials. Um, And of course, the uh, work of Fahad Bashara, who has also worked with uh, just an amazing set of transactional documents um, uh, and has kind of brought a new body of sources to light in a, a very nuanced way and so um, indeed you know we're not at this moment where we are you know where we must rely on these European sources um, but for my particular topic I would say they were uh, really important um, and the fact that there were very few Arabic sources for the Yemeni port of Mocha was not one of these kind of accidents of survival necessarily uh, the period I deal with the 17th and 18th centuries is a moment of um, a major surge in scholarly production in Yemen uh, uh, with the rise of the cost of the imamate. Um, And indeed, we know that, uh, you know, writing and uh, scholarship just um, surged, particularly in the highlands of Yemen. Um, But it's really important to understand that that writing had a stake in representing the imamate and the imams as really kind of separate from the mundane and kind of tainted world of trade, right? And so these kind of commercial connections that I saw as extremely important, and I will say as that appear very, very prominently in the European sources, are uh, very much occluded in the local scholarship. Um, and again, that is by design rather than by just omission. And, um, you know, it's amazing because when you do read some of these uh, European sources, you do get a sense that uh, the Qasimi uh, Imams were deeply tied into the system of trade. They communicated very frequently with uh, European and other foreign merchants. Um, and of course they benefited from the trade. And that should be, uh, I think, very obvious to anyone who understands the shape of the Yemeni coffee trade and the um, kind of uh, uh, wealth that that yielded locally um, in that period. Uh, and so, um, so those European sources, I would say, uh, you know, are important for Yemen at that time for those reasons. And again, there's a reason for it. It's not just, again, about omission or loss of documents um but i will also say that um what the you know understanding that that wasn't the story i wanted to tell i didn't want to write the story necessarily of europeans in yemen although of course they figure very largely as both actors and observers which is i think is important to differentiate um but one thing i have tried to do uh, uh you know kind of in response to what i understand is this you know imbalance um is uh i have tried to Put lots of voices together, um, and so there'll be a few cases in the a recent book uh, *In Ship but Not Sold*, but also in a few of my articles, in which I take an episode that appears in a an Arabic chronicle, um, usually in very short form, you know, two or three lines. Um, and then ta- then look at that same episode as it has appeared in, say, the VOC records, but then the English records and then maybe even a French document. And so um, it's not necessarily a question of European versus local sources. It's a question of kind of weighing the multiplicity of voices. Um, and they all speak uh, in conflict with each other. and there's I think looking at the kind of gaps between them is really important. So it may not just be kind of, local versus European, but it's about this kind of multiplicity of perspectives and um, kind of putting them together. And I feel like for my particular topic, that has been one way and one effective way to deal with or or that I've at least tried to grapple with this imbalance. Um, But I would also say as an art historian, and this is in some ways my provocation to those outside of other fields, because, um, you know, I know that, uh, that, you know, we're a small minority uh, of participants in this field, although uh, Jenny is on the call. And of course, she's also an art historian as well. Uh, but, um, you know, I also want to suggest that being able to read something like an architectural plan. Or the map of a city, which is you know a skill. This is not something that we all just know how to do. Um, you know, just as an in, as implicit knowledge. Um, that that those are also primary documents. Buildings are primary documents. Objects are also primary documents. And so, um, I think that the message is that uh, there's a multiplicity of kinds of materials that we can use, and that using them together, reading them together in ways that are um, perhaps new or inventive. Um, uh, and kind of allow them to speak on their own terms, um, I think is uh, really perhaps the main message of um, some of my recent work um, on material culture and built culture uh, in the Indian Ocean world.
0: Thank you. So fabulous to hear you talk about the primacy of material culture in telling history as well. I feel like it's very easy to forget that in many ways, but to have you reinforce that here and throughout All of your work um, has been really influential. Um, And so maybe now turning more towards the book and its chapters, in addition to the introduction and conclusion, your book consists of four chapters addressing the complex negotiations for establishing and maintaining trade relationships in early modern Yemen. In your introduction, you make a number of subtle interventions into how historians regard object mobility and exchange, particularly touching on the delicate nature of trade networks, as well as the relationships between gifting, display, and consumption. Can you talk us through these interventions?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, I think one of the main things that I had to kind of grapple with was the legacies of these great merchants, right? And many of our sources are Quite hyperbolic uh, on that level, right? You know, and especially I would say uh, the Arabic sources talking about these great merchants and their, you know, their, their kind of untold riches, right? Um, and that's a very, uh, alluring image. And it's indeed one of the images that kind of drew me into this, um, world of study. Um, and I'm fascinated by merchant legacies. Um, but, uh, you know, when you really start to delve into some of the sources, You understand that those merchant legacies, as kind of impressive as they were, particularly for those who beheld them at their time, um, they were also extremely fragile. Right, And we understand the Indian Ocean to be a space of great instability uh, in that I mean, it is a body of water. right? You could have um, a convoy of ships that you could lose to a storm or to pirates or their your cargo could be seized at port for various reasons. Political instability at the ports um, could affect uh, the yield of your trade. Um, and so when I started to actually kind of turn that formulation over and to see it instead, not as this kind of position of continuing stability of merchants and their staff, But actually, as a very fragile status, it really changed things for me and began to understand that that status that merchants were able to attain uh, was not just this constant. It was not something that they just attained and then that was it. Um, they needed to continually remake and re-solidify their status and to maintain that status and reassert their, um, their role as major merchants. And I strongly believe and contend in the book that major merchants were treated very differently than kind of the middling sword or someone like a broker or someone who just worked, you know, in these, uh, you know, fairing these local jilbas or boats back and forth, you know, between the two coasts of the Red Sea, right? And so being a major merchant was a very, uh, kind of, um, uh, revered status. Uh, but it was not just something that you grabbed onto and held onto. It had to be sustained. So the way in which these, um, the status was sustained, uh, was very clearly after I began to kind of see it in this way was through social interactions. Um, and these social a- interactions, uh, very fundamentally involved material goods. Um, and then many of the material goods happen to be the very same items of trade that were, that, you know, these merchants were dealing with, whether it be bales of coffee or sacks of spices or textiles or, um, Chinese porcelain, for instance. and I began to see that uh, there was a way in which these merchants had to express themselves every year when they came into the port. And this is, of course, you know, the nature of a cyclical trade in which boats are coming in to the port, at, you know, at a particular time, um, every trade season. Um, and then once I kind of understood uh, that... Then I began to see all of these interactions in a very, very different way, Um, and so um, in some ways, this is really all about kind of merchant status and how we understand merchant status um, and the uh, kind of what I would say what I would call intellectual leverage that we gain when we began to see them as extremely fragile, rather than just kind of fixed in that status as some kind of articulation of, uh, or some kind of representation um, of their holdings or assets. Um, And so I began to see the kind of economic in very social terms, let's say. um, And uh, that's really where I started in this book.
0: Thank you. Um, And so then turning to chapter one, you delve into entry ceremonies, and the attendant material culture of maritime exchange in Yemen, which you note are often dismissed by contemporary historians as incidental and formulaic. Why focus on these initial moments of encounter, and how does this broader picture of exchange change or add to our understanding of the social aspect of exchange in the early modern Indian Ocean world?
2: Yeah, so it's funny because the, the contemporary historians are, you know, basically dismissive of mo- most of the kinds of things that I talk about in this book. This is like the detritus of, you know, the things that no one who talks about trade really wants to talk about that I realize are, um, you know, Uh, were not incidental. And of course, our contemporary historians are dismissive of these uh, ceremonies of entry when merchants would arrive in the port because their narrators were dismissive of them. And so what you would see is, and again, uh, definitely we are working from the perspective of European merchants, um, some of whom talked a little bit about these ceremonies because they were extremely boastful and they want to say, oh, you know, I was received so well. Everyone, you know, recognized my status and they, you know, gave me all these gifts and so forth. Um, But generally, and especially those Merchants who would come back and forth between certain ports um, every year, uh, you get a sense of exasperation. Like, oh, we were brought in with that same ceremony that they, you know, hold for us every year, and they get to a point where they don't even want to talk about it anymore. You know, uh, they don't want to talk about the number of horses that were brought out, the number of notables that showed up to receive these new boats and major merchants as they came into the port, the number of drummers and um, musicians who were there to to uh, recognize them as well. And um, I, it was only when I began to look more closely at these ceremonies and I noticed that it was particularly um, two major merchants from India who uh, refused to come on shore. Um in two instances, and I realized that these are just you know these were the um, uh, uh, were not the rule they were just these kind of two two incidents that really just kind of sparked my imagination because uh, they said that the ceremonies that were offered to them were too paltry for them to come on shore um, and that made me realize that they were seeing these ceremonies in a radically different light than their European counterparts were who saw them again as formulaic and as kind of uh, you know just a big bore really they didn't want to they didn't want to delve into them. Um, and I began to realize how these essential moments um, and were so important to the merchant experience. And that um this kind of social ordering would take place as soon as someone disembarked from their ship, the place where you were sent, the way that you were treated, that would already define who you were going to be in that port city. Um and so for these major merchants, these ceremonies were actually absolutely weighty because if they were not given the um the relevant accord to their status then um they uh, feared that their trading season would be affected by this um and then we know uh, what happened when some some merchants would come into the port and they would be uh kind of subjected to um to kind of extra scrutiny um and the kind of rumors that this would uh, uh inspire in the port about their solvency about their assets about some problem that may have happened all the way in the port of Surat. Um, in in uh, in Western India, um, and I realized that those moments were absolutely consequential, rather than being irrelevant. Um, and one of the points as well is that, um, and again, kind of adding on to this kind of social view of economic processes, is that um, for me, trade does not begin at the moment of the first economic exchange. It does not begin when money changes hands. It began as soon as that merchant. Arrived in the port, um, and that was a very different kind of temporal scope to think about these kind of performances of merchant identity as being very fundamental um, and you know beginning you know from the moment before the merchant even disembarked from the ship.
0: Certainly. It gives a much broader picture of what's taking place as part of Indian Ocean exchange. Um, And then in chapters two and three, you focus on gifts by European, Yemeni, and Indian merchants to various officials and workers in Yemen. What are the differences between the Zaydi highlands and the coast that you highlight in your book? And how do European, Indian, and local Yemeni practices of gifting differ?
2: Yeah so gifts is another topic that um you know they're just endlessly written about um in many of the trade documents particularly by the companies because they were again exasperated by these um, by these processes of gifting and they often resorted to language um about extortion and, you know, they're talk about and they spend a lot of time talking about the greed of these, you know, oriental despots who just can't stop asking them for gifts. And, um, you know, we could fall into this pattern of kind of just echoing or mimicking their perspective or we could push back against it. And I realized very clearly that there was a lot more going on there then was represented by these very kind of frequent remarks. And of course, recourse to, to greed is really a kind of interesting one, of course, because these European merchants were all there because they were seeking great profits. And so, you know, uh, kind of you know, sending out these messages about the greed of local officials, um, I think definitely should be interrogated, of course, um, as well as these tropes of Oriental despotism and the capriciousness of local rulers um and so uh those gift uh, uh narratives many of them are very very extended because they involve kind of back and forth and you know uh you know fights about gifts and how much how much someone is due and um so i knew i needed to delve into these because of course gifting is a material process right um and uh, i would say as well that these um that these uh gift exchanges were always painted as external to the trade um what i think is absolutely clear in the context of early modern Indian Ocean trading societies is that the gift economy and the trade economy were absolutely linked together. And they're linked together in that really the same items would flow through both of them. And so you would give gifts as a um, way of, first of all, solidifying your, uh, your right to trade. But of course, those gifts would also include items that you have in your cargo. So they would also serve as a sample then to a local official about what you were bringing into the port, right? And so they fulfilled a very, very important function on many levels. Um, and so uh, I began to really kind of look at what was being gifted, uh, what um, what these meant, how they were received, um, and to take apart this uh, largely European narrative um, that saw these gifts as these kind of examples of extortion um, and tried to really uh, paint what I think actually many of these European merchants knew, but they were not able able to necessarily record it in this way um, that they understood, which is a fundamental aspect of trading locally um, and that uh, was, again, really tightly and closely connected to the economic transactions that they were so invested in. And so um, in those chapters, I really reject their desire to see those processes as separate. Um, and I will say it is hard in this particular instance because we have a lot of information I mean we actually have minute information about the gifts that were uh, given uh, by European merchants to local officials and other merchants um, because we have these registers that are very detailed they will tell you what was given they will tell you the quantities and they will even tell you the values at that time so um, it's you know forms really a remarkable record uh, but one of the issues is that um, for local gifts we can only speculate about them. And this will usually come from hearsay, like, oh, we heard that uh, Mullah Muhammad Ali from uh, Surat gave the local governor, you know, X, Y, and Z. Um, But this was, you know, not, it's a very different kind of recording. Um, And I will say again, with these gifts, um, all of these gifts, whether they were given by a Gujarati merchant to the Imam of Yemen, or a uh, European merchant to the Imam of Yemen, they were usually extremely formulaic right which makes it um easier to kind of dismiss and of course you know we have ideas contemporary ideas about what a gift should be it should be sentimental it should be given without any kind of expectation of return it should be special right these were not those kinds of gifts that, you know as merchant tribute which i was is a term that i use they operated um under very rigid systems but um i argue that those systems are also worth understanding because they were fundamental to the trade And so that's what I try to do with those two chapters. Um, And I would say that there's um, been a lot of interest lately in kind of thinking about gifts and also thinking about uh, gifts and diplomacy. And so uh, there was a much wider kind of scope of discussion far outside of Indian Ocean Studies that I was trying to engage with in those two chapters.
0: Certainly. And you paint a really vivid picture throughout both chapters of A lot of the annoyances that take place in the practices of gift giving on both ends of frustration with lack of receiving a gift or frustration with having to give a gift that was initially only intended to be one time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, so it's interesting because when the Europeans kind of intervened in this, sometimes they would describe it again in this language of extortion and greed when it was rather about breaking patterns, right? And I, I think one thing that's really important that, that also kind of came, became clear to me when I really started to work through those records was that, um, that these local servants, and I'm saying servants of the companies of the VOC or the EIC in, in Yemen, they were spending a lot of time thinking about how they were representing these transactions back to superiors, whether they were uh, in, you know, in Bombay or Batavia. Um, and they had a, a kind of, um, you know, their constant fear of these kind of low level employees of both companies, remembering that, you know, being sent to Mocha was not necessarily a promotion. If you were sent to Mocha, you were pretty low on the kind of hierarchy of these companies. Um, you know, they wanted to make sure that they were not being seen as Uh, engaging in any kind of misconduct, right? So there's this kind of defensive mechanism in these sources as well that we have to read through. And I think that becomes really clear in this literature about gifting.
0: Absolutely. And then turning to chapter four, you look at the extensive structural apparatus that undergirded the enterprise of pre-modern maritime trade, emphasizing the mundane over the exceptional. What do these more utilitarian or functional objects tell us about Yemen's maritime trade practices?
2: Yeah, so this is a funny chapter because again, it's all these things that, um, uh, to me, I realized were quite consequential to um, uh, for foreigners living in um, in the port of Mocha, right? Uh, you know, and it kind of you know, I just think about, you know, when you're packing for a trip, not that any of us lately have been taking many trips. I think most of us have been pretty much stuck at home for the past few months. But, um, you know, it's just kind of, you know, approach to, you know, what what do I need to bring with me and what can I obtain there, right? Um, and I think it's a very interesting question from a kind of contemporary perse- perspective, but definitely historically, it's one that I thought was worth asking. And so, um, and this chapter, I will t- tell you, deals very, very much with uh, European practices, um, uh, almost exclusively because uh, this is, again, the material that we have a lot of information for. Um, but... Uh, uh, I dealt with two kind of bodies of documents. One were um, inventories of the European factories to see what kinds of items they held in them. And the other was uh, these request lists um, that uh, Dutch and English officials mainly would send back home and say, well, when you send the ship next year, please bring, you know, and they would these items and they would enumerate a list of the things that they absolutely needed. And so kind of looking and comparing these kind of inventories and request lists, um, it's really fascinating to think about what was absolutely required locally. It was a great focus on items related to writing, which I thought was so interesting. Um, And it brings us to think about the very different scribal practices that European merchants would engage in in a place like Yemen that could not be provisioned locally because they needed quills rather than reed pens, for instance, that they needed paper that was sized in a particular way, um, that they also uh, needed, and this is a question, I mean, the, the word need is a kind of interesting one, but I will say that they needed or they felt that they needed desks and chairs because of the kind of postures of writing. Um, and none of these things would have been available locally, which allows us to kind of think about how um, a particular set of material items provisioned the trade for these merchants and how, you know, in the ship that was filled with cargo that was being sent over um, in the interest of making a profit for the company, a great deal of space was given away to these materials, which were seen as essential, but are often not understood as the kind of fodder of the trade because they were so structural again. And the other major category, which is one that I have kind of continued to carry with me um, in terms of other research, uh, is alcohol. And for these European merchants, there is just, you know, I mean, just tons and tons of different kinds of wine and brandy. Um, and to the extent that you understood that this was extremely essential for them, uh, and it made me think not just about the liquid that was being transported, but the vessels within which they were being transported, because, you know, I, you have to then imagine a bottle of wine that was within a casket or a box that was then packed with hay with other bottles and to kind of think about these containers, which then supported this trade. It also kind of inspired me to think about these kind of, you know, local portraits of uh, port officials in Mocha, many of whom were described as being, uh, kind of very much brought into this culture of, uh, of major alcohol consumption in communication with the European merchants. And so, you know, these material things led me to social practices, I will say, and social practices also kind of led me to material objects. Um, none of these are the kinds of objects that you will see uh, on display front and center in, uh, the Rijksmuseum or even the VNA. These are all, again, very mundane items. Um, but I felt like they were so ubiquitous that they needed to be discussed. Um, and I will tell you that um, since publishing the book, I've been much more um, uh, interested in. Uh, the archaeology of shipwrecks. Um there have been a number of shipwrecks in the Red Sea that I've spent a little bit more time working on. Um and it's amazing to see so many of these goods that we know were so imported in a port like Mocha also appearing in shipwrecks. It gives us a sense of how widespread they were, um on boats that were piloted by um, you know, by by many different pilots um throughout the red sea um and were could be found even you know uh, north of jeddah as well which uh forms a kind of different cultural zone so um that uh, chapter was a, a fun one to write because um it was all about these mundane things that um again art historians have backed away from because they're not seen as aesthetically very interesting. Um, But, uh, you know, but I would contend otherwise that uh, these are the items that we have to be talking about, because they were so important to these interactions.
0: Absolutely. And really throughout your book, and as you've beautifully been explaining for us today, you've focused on broader social engagements over specific financial transactions. What do you see as the future possibilities of such an engagement and how does that change our perception of the early modern Indian Ocean world?
2: Yeah. So in some ways, I mean, it, it's funny, you know, I think, um, when you look back at a book that you've written, you know, you always have to ask yourself, you know, who was I talking to? Right. And we always think we know who we're talking to, but it, you know, turns out sometimes we're talking to multiple audiences and different parts of the book are talking to different audiences. Um, I would say that in general, and again, kind of going back into the historiography of Indian Ocean studies that, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time really talking to economic historians of the Indian Ocean, as well as what I would call the company historians of the Indian Ocean, right? That there were uh, kind of two perspectives that I felt were the most dominant ones when I first came on the scene. One, which was very much looking at this kind of quantitative approach to Indian Ocean history and trade. And the other was really kind of seeing Indian Ocean trade through the eyes of a single company from the words of their document without kind of questioning any of the kind of um, preoccupations and um, interests that appear in them. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I think part of the goal has been to... um, to open up source material, uh, again, that, you know, we can't necessarily, that it's not as useful anymore, I think, to kind of just speak from the Dutch or the English perspective, uh, certainly bringing together all of these materials, um, in the way that I have described previously, I think is really productive along with other kinds of sources that are not textual. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of facility working with those sources, I think is increasingly important. Um, but also that we just kind understand trade in this more holistic way you know um, the merchant houses of mocha in some ways came from a uh, uh, that that book came from a very simple question which is where did trade happen <laughs> and you know that seems like such a and I don't mean what city I mean where in that city right and I I felt like many of my colleagues hadn't thought about that and maybe they didn't care about that, but it became very consequential and from that spun out all these questions for me. And the answer to that was actually that they took the trade took place in merchant houses, um, which you know, very much kind of overturned ideas about public and private division and about use of public space um, that I think uh, are very dominant for our understanding of Middle Eastern cities. Um, And another kind of, uh, I think, similar example, um, I think, came from my frustration in reading the work of some historians who might write a whole book, for instance, about Indian Ocean textiles. But if you were to ask that historian what is the textile that you're talking about that was traded in these large numbers? I don't know that that historian would be able to necessarily identify that textile or even describe that textile, right? And so to kind of get into these kinds of issues that are absolutely relevant to the trade, but they are much more materially focused, much more spatially focused, You know, I hope that those kinds of perspectives will enhance you know, what we know and what we continue to learn about Indian Ocean trade.
0: Absolutely. Um, You've painted a really vivid and complex picture of the various processes that give shape to exchange and to space making in Yemen and throughout the Indian Ocean. And I think at this point, we've probably taken up a lot of your time. So I wonder if you might give us a little glimpse of any current or future projects that you're working on.
2: Yeah, so I'm working on a few things. Um, I'll just kind of put out a few teasers out there, (laughs) I'll say. Um, One of them has to do with representations of the city of Mocha. And uh, Ahmed was at a talk I gave a few weeks ago over Zoom, in which um, I began to look at um, some 17th century representations of the port, just thinking about various ways in which we can represent port city space in two-dimensional form. So that project is uh, in the works, and it's pushing me to look much more closely at prints of that city that, uh, we see very frequently reproduced, um, uh, and to really kind of question what they are showing us and how we can read them. And, um, I will say as well, that I've become very, very interested lately in digital methods and in computational approaches to, um, to art history, as well as to the humanities. Uh, and so, um, you know I, I don't necessarily have an indian ocean project in mind there but um i'm always thinking about how we can begin to uh work with datasets that are related related to the um uh related to the indian ocean world and so i think that's going to be the next next horizon for me uh but my hope too is that you know we can all get out of our homes soon and uh, get back into the archives and get back into the field. And um, that is my aspiration for, I'll say 2021, being uh, safe um, uh, and looking toward the future.
0: Fabulous. It's very interesting to hear what you're working on now. Um, And so thank you so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored the well-illustrated, meticulously researched and eminently readable, shipped but not sold, material culture and the social protocols of trade During Yemen's coffee age. This is your host, Jenny Peruski.
1: And I'm Ahmed Al Mazmi.
0: Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.